Turn in my Bibles, if you would, please, to Revelation chapter 11. This evening I want to jump right into our study of the 11th chapter. I have a lot of ground that I want to cover tonight. I think that this is one of the most fascinating portions of Revelation. I've always been interested in this chapter, and it just seems to be a a, a source of endless controversy. Just lots of things to think about here. The beginning of the chapter is about two very special witnesses that are raised up during the tribulation. Uh, The world has never seen two preachers like these before, Uh, not any that have been powerful, as powerful as these. Uh, We look back into the Bible, and we read both the Old and the New Testaments, and we find that there are people that God gave special abilities to. The prophets of the Old Testament were given the ability to Uh, do many mighty wonders like Moses and Elijah and Elisha. And some of them were given great prophecies that even cover some of the things that we're even talking about tonight, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Zechariah and Malachi. And then you come to the New Testament and the apostles, they were given great powers. They were able to heal people. They raised people from the dead. They were able to cast out demons. And here we find two witnesses in the book of Revelation that seem to be a combination of prophets and apostles, sort of, uh, at least in their power, and they have just a combination of different kinds of gifts. They perform miracles, they prophesy, they warn, and we even see in this chapter that they come back from the dead. But they're also hated. In the tribulation time, people are extremely wicked, The Holy Spirit's restraining power against wickedness has been taken in a large part out of the world. And so people are extremely wicked following the Antichrist. And for the most part, the message of these two witnesses goes unheeded. They're preaching in the city of Jerusalem. And so there may be a possibility that they're able to lead some of the Jewish people to the Lord. Many people do believe that there will be a, a great turning to Christ during the tribulation of Jewish people. But around the rest of the world, these men are despised so that we find that when they finally are killed, that a worldwide celebration breaks out. We're going to go ahead and get into the study tonight. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read these verses again. We read these last week, but let's go over this again from Revelation chapter 11, beginning with verse number 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses... And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified." And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. 
And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have to gather here tonight, and Lord, we thank you for your word and what we can learn from it. Lord, we just pray that you'd open this up before us, help us to understand what you'd have us to know in this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Let me remind you just briefly what we discussed in last week's message. We started off with the description, uh, the description of these two witnesses. And there were two very important words that stood out to describe these men. They are messengers and they are martyrs. They're messengers for a predetermined period of time. The scripture says here that for three and a half years, they're going to witness, and that is a time period that corresponds to the last half of the tribulation period. The last of the tribulation is called Great Tribulation, and this is the period when the Antichrist is really at the zenith of his power. During the first part of the tribulation, the Antichrist is revealed, and he strikes a peace with the Jewish people, And he allows the Jews to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. Uh, The people are allowed to reinstitute the sacrifices. And they have that holy place of God that they haven't had for many, many centuries. But in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist will break that peace. He'll become a very vigorous persecutor of the Jews. And then he'll enter into the temple. He will desecrate it. And then he will set himself up there as God. During that time, we have these two witnesses that are a thorn in the side of the Antichrist. They'll preach against him. They'll warn people about it. They'll warn about doom that's coming. And so the Antichrist will do everything in his power to try and stop them. But these two men are protected by God for his appointed time of preaching. And then finally, when their time is over, they'll go the way of prophets and preachers before them. They will become martyrs for the cause of Christ. They, they'll be overthrown. They'll be killed. And this word witness that we have here in Revelation 11 is the very same word from which we get martyr. And as I pointed out last week, that during the first century, that it was so common for people who were believers in Christ and those who would stand up and preach the gospel of Christ, that they would be killed for that witness. And so... A witness became synonymous with a martyr. If you're a martyr, you're a witness. If you're a witness, you are a martyr. A martyr. And that, that uh, death, that kind of death, was practically inevitable for a person who would preach the gospel of Christ. Now, I want to move on from the description of these two men. Uh, the Bible says here they're clothed in sackcloth. That's clothes of sadness and mourning. And they mourn for the wrath that God is about to pour out upon the world. But I want to move on from there to next, their demonstration. If we look at verses 5 and 6, it says, And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. 
These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. I want you to notice first their protection from harm. They'll be protected. Now, these two men are supremely hated by the Antichrist and his followers. The Antichrist has enough power that he's able to murder at will. And anyone who stands against the Antichrist just simply doesn't stand a chance. And that would be the way that it it would go for these two particular men if they weren't very special people that God had decided to put a hand of protection upon them. Now, anyone who would publicly declare against the Antichrist would expect to be killed, but here God protects them as they preach and they give this powerful message of the gospel of Christ. Now, the Antichrist is only given as much power as God allows. And though he seeks to kill these two men, God has his protecting hand over them. And I can imagine that the Antichrist will try just about every way within his power to try and kill them. He may start out with the usual methods to begin with. He may have some hit men to go out there and and try to kill them. But as soon as they try that, they are devoured by a fire that comes out of their mouth. He may try something more covert like sneaking up on them with commandos or SWAT team or something of of that nature. But these are men, you could say, that have eyes in the back of their head. They have a sixth natural sense that tells them when harm is about to come. And so immediately upon an attack against them, people are killed for that attack. The Antichrist may try things like tanks and fighter jets and all those kinds of things. But every time that he tries to attack them, God protects them and I think we're looking at here just a very supernatural power that uh, their enemies are instantly vaporized. But I think the thing that's really peculiar about this, when we think about the witness of these two, uh, the speech of these two martyrs and what they're doing, is we're just really struck by the difference in their mannerisms. They preach the gospel of Christ in a much different way, and the effect of that preaching and what they do in response to that preaching is much different than what we say in the pre- uh, see in the preaching of the gospel of Christ today. We live in a different dispensation, in a time that, uh, where the grace of God is apparent, but these two men are in a different dispensation of time. And so they have a very strikingly different manner about the way that they go about their business. On this day, as I say, we're living in the day of grace. And in the New Testament, Jesus taught very clearly that standing for him and preaching the gospel would bring us opposition. He said that we would be persecuted for our preaching and for our faith and for living for him. Now, as we read in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. In the book of Philippians, Paul said that we have been appointed to this kind of treatment. He says in Philippians 1, verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. As we read the rest of the New Testament, we find that Peter taught this. James taught it. And yet as we look through all of the teachings that they gave on the subject about Christians being persecuted, never one time... 
Do we ever see that the Scriptures say that we are to retaliate against those who persecute? Uh, Jesus said that we're to turn the other cheek. Paul said to glory in tribulation. Peter said count it all joy when you fall into this kind of testing. James talked about it. Again, Peter says to rejoice if you're found worthy to suffer for Christ. And in all of that, we don't find any mention of trying to defend ourselves against those who would harm us and then to attempt to harm someone else. Down through the history of the church, there have been millions of martyrs who've died for the cause of Christ And yet we see that there are no armies that are raised to defend the honor of Christ. Even think about Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember how that Peter drew out a sword and he was going to defend Jesus. And so he reached out and he struck the the high priest's servant's ear and cut it off. And what did Jesus do? He told Peter, he said, put up your sword. And then he touched that man and he healed him right there in the garden. Why did he do that? I mean, why didn't he allow Peter to protect him? Well, the reason is this is a day of grace. Those who have tried to raise Christian armies are not Christian at all. And so with Christ and his followers, we're always taught to have mercy and compassion. It's always that we're to pray for our enemies. Scripture says that we're to be kind to our enemies. And if we're to have any kind of response against them at all, it is through our kindness... That the Bible says that we'll heap condemnation upon our enemies. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 12. He said, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is the consistent message that we find in the New Testament. Never any retaliation for the people of God. And why? Well, again, we're living in a day of grace. And so we must be compassionate as the Savior was compassionate. Jesus died on the cross. You remember his words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The martyr Stephen, as he was being stoned, he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. So this dispensation is a day of grace. But the tribulation belongs to a different dispensation. This is a time of God's judgment. And so God puts a special type of protection on his servants so that when men try to kill them, they will retaliate. They'll defend themselves. Now, we'll get into it in just a moment, but we see that type of protection and judgment in the Old Testament with God's prophets. There were times when God did consume people with fire who stood against his people. And God has done that in the past. He doesn't do it now, but he's done it in the past. And there's a time when God is going to do that in the future. So here we have this protection for these two potent preachers. They demonstrate the power of God by fire that comes out of their mouths. And someone has said, you talk about bad breath. That is really bad breath. But that's the way they're going to protect themselves. Now, secondly, we look at the plagues they command. Verse 6 says, These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, God has used supernatural power in the past to give credence to his messengers. 
We read in Acts chapter 2 about the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. And we saw great power of God. He, he gave that visual demonstration of the tongues of fire that came and sat on the members of the church. And then the people began to speak with tongues. And God did that in order to give the church credence to let them know that this was a a church of God, that something new was happening, that the Holy Spirit had come. The apostles in their early ministry were able to heal people. They cast out demons, and part of the purpose that they were able to do that was to validate their ministry. That was to say that these apostles came from God. And, of course, Jesus, uh, when he came and did the miracles that he did, I remember Nicodemus came to him at night and said, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God because nobody can do these miracles that you do. There's no man who's able to do that. But in the Old Testament especially, we see the power of God that was put on his people uh, specifically for this purpose. For instance, when Moses went to Pharaoh, uh, he was anxious that he would have something to show Pharaoh that he just wasn't blowing smoke when he delivered his message. You know, in in Exodus chapter 3, Moses met God at the burning bush, and God said, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and tell Pharaoh that he has to let my people go. And then in Exodus chapter 4, we find there that God said to Moses, And thou shalt take this rod in thine hand, wherewith thou shalt do signs. So God gave him the ability to do signs and miracles to prove his authenticity. And Moses took that rod. And that's the rod that he used to cause those plagues to come upon Egypt. Later, Moses used that very same rod to part the Red Sea. And the people walked across on dry ground. And all of those things were validation. That was to say that the messenger was instilled with the power of God. And he had God's permission to speak for him to his people. And then in verse number 5, then, of this text, we find that this fire comes out of the witnesses' mouths and devours the enemies. And that has an Old Testament ring to it. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 1. And here we see a parallel to this kind of a sign. And also very clearly how is validation of God's prophet. Now let me give you an introduction to the scriptures that we're going to read. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume the king's messengers. King Ahaziah had taken a very bad fall, and he wanted to know whether he was going to die from that fall. And so he sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to let him know whether he was going to live or die. Well, an angel of God appeared to Elijah and told him that he needed to intercept those messengers, and he needed to deliver a message of his own. And God's message was... Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? And so the messengers went back to Ahaziah and they told him what Elijah said. And so then Ahaziah sent a captain with 50 soldiers to go and fetch Elijah and to bring him back to Samaria. Now I want to pick up the story in verse number 9 of this chapter. 2 Kings 1 verse number 9. It says, Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he sat on top of an hill. And he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be the man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. 
Again also he sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down thou quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And he sent again a captain of the third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain and the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came down fire from heaven and burnt up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. Now there you see that Elijah said, If I be a prophet of God, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And that fire fell. And that was validation that this was a prophet of God. So likewise, in Revelation chapter 11, we have these two witnesses with power to bring plagues upon the earth. And the scripture says that they could do this as often as they will. So these are two potent preachers, to be sure, because they show these Old Testament types of abilities. These are bona fide miracles that no one could do unless God is with them. So they have protection, and they command plagues to come upon the earth. Now, thirdly, we want to look into the possibilities of their identity. Now, all of this is interesting, but here is where I think that it really gets interesting, because these plagues give rise to speculation about the identity of these two witnesses. Could these be two men who have lived before? Could they be someone from the Old Testament that God has called back and now they become witnesses and prophets of God once again? Or are we looking at two people that we've never seen before and we can't possibly know the identity of them? Well, we're going to take a look for just a few minutes about what some people think about this. There's a very popular opinion that these two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah. And with the types of miracles that we see performed here, we we probably don't have any trouble at all understanding why people would think that Elijah is a part of this. And uh, in just a minute, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Elijah in regards to the specific miracles that he performed. But why would we think about Enoch? I mean, how does he get into the mix? Well, there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 9 that is the basis for pairing Elijah and Enoch. And this verse says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Now, there's a very peculiar characteristic of both Enoch and Elijah that's never happened to anyone else before. Neither Enoch nor Elijah died. Now, Enoch is an Old Testament antediluvian. Now, that's a very fancy way of saying that he lived before the flood. He was one of the patriarchs that lived before the flood. And he was actually the great-grandfather of Noah. Enoch was a very righteous man. He was so righteous, in fact, that the Bible says something very, very special happened to him. He lived for God. He preached for God. And he was so righteous that the Bible tells us that God just simply took him. We find this in Genesis chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. 
And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch left the world without dying. And so people look at that and they say, well, that doesn't match the Scripture in Hebrews. If it's appointed unto men once to die, then Enoch will have to die. A similar circumstance exists with Elijah. Elijah had a miraculous entrance into heaven. And Second Kings tells us about this. Uh, Elijah and Elisha were uh, talking and they were walking along and this happened. This is in Second Kings chapter 2. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. I can imagine that when Elisha saw that, he said, well, was it something I said? And here I was talking to him, and he's gone. But they're walking along, and just all of a sudden, Elijah's whisked away. He's taken up in a whirlwind to go into heaven, and he goes there without dying. So what about Hebrews 9.27? I mean, if the Scripture says that all men must die, then the logical conclusion seems to be that these men must be Enoch and Elijah. And so these two witnesses could possibly be them. They come back to earth. They prophesy once again. Then they're killed, and thus they fulfill Hebrews 9.27. Then there's also one other uh, Scripture in the New Testament that mentions Enoch, And it's associated with end times. Now, Enoch, again, was a prophet of God. And even having lived before the first advent of Christ, of course, he didn't live long enough to see Christ come, but he prophesied of Christ's second coming. Jude relates this to us in Jude, verse number 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So it seems that Enoch and Elijah could be linked to these two witnesses. But let's go back to that scripture in Hebrews once again and let's see if there's a problem with interpretation. It says in that scripture, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. The scripture says that all of us must die once. Now, isn't there a problem with that? Because there are some people who have died twice. And so maybe uh, it should say this, it is appointed unto men to die at least once. Well, that's what it would have to say if the Scripture is absolute. Some men have died twice. If you look in Scripture, you find that there are resurrections of many dead people. Uh, They were raised from the dead, and all of them, with with the exception of Christ, had to die again. Now, I'm not going to go through all of those, but most notably, we think about Lazarus. Remember him? Jesus commanded Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and the Bible said that he'd been dead for four days. And Jesus called him back to life. Lazarus proved to be a very, very difficult case for the Pharisees because whenever they said that Jesus wasn't the Christ, they always had that living, breathing Lazarus that they had to contend with. In fact, uh, not only did they want to kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill Lazarus again. Well, Lazarus lived again for a time. But has anybody seen Lazarus lately? No, because he had to die again. So that tells us he died twice. 
So that shows us then that Hebrews 9.27 is not intended to be absolute. And then you have this problem also, if you want to call it that, the problem of all the people that are living at the time that Jesus comes back. Now, I don't know about you, but when Jesus comes back, I'm out of here. I'm not hanging around. And so those that are believers in Christ are going to be translated, taken into heaven. All living believers are taken into heaven without dying. So what are you going to do with them? Does this mean that the Scriptures aren't right? I mean, the Scripture is wrong. It says it's appointed unto man once to die. So what about all of those people? Well, I think that we learn from this that Hebrews 9.27 is not absolute. And what the Scripture is saying here is just a general statement. It's saying that this is the common experience of all men that we will all have to die. And after that will come the judgment. And so the Scripture is telling us you need not hold out hope as an unbeliever that you're not going to die or somehow you're going to escape death, that somehow you are another Enoch or Elijah that's going to leave this world without dying because it's going to happen to every person. We are going to die. And that's really all that Hebrews is trying to tell us. All men are going to die. We're all going to have to face the judgment of God. So trying to identify these two witnesses based upon Hebrews 9.27 is bogus. Now, they may be Enoch and Elijah, I don't know, but it won't be because of Hebrews 9.27. Well, there are others that are proposed as these two witnesses. For instance, John the Baptist, he's a name that comes up. The scriptures do say that he came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. But I suppose that the biggest rival to the Elijah-Enoch combination is Elijah and Moses. Now, Elijah always seems to get in there. I mean, you look at the miracles that are performed here, and, and he, he always seems to be mentioned as one of these witnesses. So let's look at him for just a moment. Now, we've already talked about the fire. Uh, Elijah called down that fire and consumed the servants of Ahaziah. Then we also know that he called down fire on Mount Carmel, and that was the contest between uh, him and the prophets of Baal. And so he called down fire from heaven. God consumed his sacrifice. Then we just read about how Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. There was an angel who came down in a chariot of fire. So Elijah was one hot prophet. And he just might be the one who fits in Revelation chapter 11. But there's that other miracle of Elijah. I mean, there's that one where he was able to shut up heaven that it didn't rain. Now, would you look again here at the exact time that these two witnesses prophesy? It says here, three and a half years. Look at verse 6. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. And that is exactly the length of time that Elijah kept it from raining on Israel back in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. It was for three and a half years. Now, James gives us the exact time in James chapter 5. It says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Did you know if you go back into 1 Kings chapter 17, where we find that original story, that we're not given the time period of three and a half years? There it says that it wouldn't rain for three years. And what we learn here, I think, is that is an approximate time. The exact timing is given in the New Testament. And well, how did James know that? I mean, it's not written in the Old Testament. So how would James come up with this period of three and a half years? 
Ah, well, we know how. And that is because Jesus told us the exact time. In Hebrews 4, or excuse me, Luke 4.25, it says, But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. Nobody could know that unless Jesus had said it. It was three and a half years. And so James just repeats the prophecy, or, or excuse me, the revelation of the Lord in the New Testament. Now, we look at that, and we think, well, doesn't all of this seem to be related? I mean, what is all this? I mean, this exact timing. Uh, why do we have the exact timing? Well, one thing we know is that the Bible is very precise in its prophecy. We saw that when we talked about those first two verses in chapter 11, and we were talking about the time of tribulation. And what did we learn there? Well, we went back to the book of Daniel, and we saw that Daniel was given the exact timing of when the temple was going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Daniel was given the exact timing that the Old Testament would come to an end. And over 400 years before Jesus died, Daniel was given the exact time that Jesus would be crucified. And it works out to the very year. The Bible is very precise in its prophecy. And so three and a half years may be included here to give us a clue to the identity of these two witnesses. So one of them just might be Elijah. Then we have another powerful prophecy in the Old Testament that's in the book of Malachi. The last words in the book of Malachi are these. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. I don't know what you do with that prophecy because most likely this is not talking about the Elijah-John the Baptist connection. Now, we know about that. The uh, New Testament writers go back and they quote another prophecy that we find in the Old Testament that talks about one who would come And he would be the forerunner of Christ. He would come in the power, the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he would preach to the people. And he would introduce the Messiah when he came. He would prepare the way for the Messiah. Well, that particular scripture in Malachi could not be talking about that connection. It doesn't seem to be talking about the connection between John the Baptist and Elijah. It's an end-time prophecy. And so there is another scripture that might help us to identify this particular person as Elijah. Now, what about Moses? What, what about him? Now, we've already ruled out that Hebrews 9.27 doesn't necessarily have to be an identifier because that scripture uh, doesn't have any bearing on the fact of whether Enoch and Elijah died. So we know that Moses did die and Elijah didn't die. So is that a problem with our combination? I don't think so. But many people think that this is Moses because we look at the type of plagues that are done. One of the plagues that it says that these men are able to do is they are able to turn water into blood. And wasn't that one of the miracles that Moses did? He turned all the water in Egypt, the water in the River Nile, he turned to blood. And the Bible says that all of the fish in the river died and the land stank because of the smell of those fish. And so we look at that and we say, well, that is the same kind of, of a miracle that Moses did. And then if you look further here in Revelation, it, it also talks about plural plagues. It says all plagues. And so many people believe that what it refers to then is mosaic type of plagues. And they can come at any time that these two witnesses decide to call on those plagues. 
So that's the speculation about their identity. We have two very unique prophets of God. There are more miracles that are associated with Elijah and Moses than any other two people in the Bible except Jesus. Now, I say that with a little bit of a caveat. Elisha did more miracles, but they weren't miracles of the same type that Moses and Elijah were able to perform. So the world has never really seen anyone who could perform miracles of the magnitude of both Moses and Elijah. Now, I've said all of that to finally come down to this. What I've told you tonight are only possibilities. The Bible does not tell us who these two men are. It's just speculation. And the Bible must have a purpose in not telling us. God doesn't want us to know who they are. And so for me to say, well, it has to be Moses and Elijah, it has to be Enoch, it has to be John the Baptist or some other prophet that I might name, I simply don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. And I think that we probably spend uh, too much time trying to figure these kinds of things out when the Bible just doesn't tell us. Well, we're going to come back to this in uh, July. I'm going to be on vacation for a while, and uh, next week we have Lord's Supper, so we have a special message for that. But in July, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to preach two more messages on these two potent preachers. But I want to leave you with this thought tonight. Once again, the tribulation is in a different dispensation. It's a time of judgment. There's a very fine line that is drawn, and very special circumstances have to exist before any person will come to Christ during the time of the tribulation. Now, today we talk about the absolute necessity of Holy Spirit conviction before a person can come to Christ. And the good thing, you might say, of course, all things that God does are good, but for us, living in this time, the good thing for us is that there is more availability of the Holy Spirit's power and the Holy Spirit's working in the world today. He's present among us. And so the Holy Spirit is working to draw people to Christ. And again, that is absolutely necessary that he do this. But we're looking at the tribulation time, this period that we're talking about here, and the power, uh, the influence, I should say, of the Holy Spirit is severely limited during that time. And so I think that it's going to be very difficult for people to be saved and, and, the, and, and it's going to be very, very few people in one sense of the word out of all the millions and billions that populate the earth that are going to be brought to Christ through all of these things of tribulation that happen. So what that tells us is that the Bible is absolutely correct and it means what it says when it says that today is the day that you need to get saved. Now, if you hear the message tonight and you're not saved, somebody listening on the Internet, you hear this and you're not saved, the time to be saved is right now because I think the Bible gives us a very good indication that if you've heard the gospel of Christ before Jesus comes again, that you will not believe it later. If you don't believe it now, you won't believe it later. So the Bible means what it says when it says, Now, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. It takes God's Spirit working in our hearts to save us. When God calls you, He works in your heart to save and praise God that He saves people today. Let's pray for them that the Holy Spirit will be at work among us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the time that we have to spend together tonight. And Lord, uh, we look at all these things in the book of Revelation and there are many, many interesting things that we find here Help us, Lord, that we don't get stuck in 
speculations and let that be the focus of what we do and and arguing about these different kinds of things. But, Lord, may we just look to the overall message that you're trying to get across to us. Jesus is coming back. People must believe in order to be saved. And, Lord, we just pray that your Spirit would work in us, work among us, that you would draw people to the cross of Christ where they can see him lifted up and they would trust him for their salvation. Lord, bless our people tonight. We thank you for each one who's come to hear the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.